Good morning. And I want to say hi to our new friends in Tacoma, Washington. I was there last week doing a seminar and it was fantastically attended and received and had such a good time with you all out there and we're, we're thankful for you. Let's begin class with, with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we count it a privilege to call you our Father and we ask that your Spirit will join us this morning and lighten our minds, draw our hearts together and, and enable us to take the true message about you to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing a lesson number six in the quarterly stewardship, Motives of the Heart. And the title is The Marks of a Steward. And the memory verse is 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. And it says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. First question, what is a steward? An overseer. Okay, great. Absolutely. Person who manages another person's property or estate or business, a caretaker to fulfill, no notice, to fulfill the desires of the owner. Isn't that what a steward does? To fulfill the intentions or desires or goals of the owner, not their own goals, right? Okay. And the qualities the steward must possess, if we read our um, second paragraph in the lesson, it says, as Christians... As a Christian steward's brand or mark is a reflection of Christ's love through the relationship that he or she has with him. We live our lives and practice the traits of Christ. Our lives will reveal our brand. Our brand is his brand. Our identities are blended with his identities. And the traits of character, the steward goes in the next paragraph, that they list in the next paragraph are faithfulness, loyalty, a clear conscience, obedience, and trustworthiness. These are the, the traits that we're going to review in the lesson this week. And I think all those are very important traits. I want to validate those traits. Did you notice one glaring omission, though? One glaring omission for me. Understanding. Understanding was not listed. Remember what Jesus said to his uh, apostles in John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you servants. Rather, I call you friends. Because servants don't understand, and I've let you in on everything my father and I are doing. So look at the other traits of character, which are important. But can a person be faithful, loyal, have a clear conscience, obedient, and trustworthy, meaning they fulfill their word, and still not understand their master, nor what the master is trying to accomplish? Thus, could they, in all good conscience, be working against the master? So we'll come back to that and we'll unpack that some more as the lesson unrolls. But as from our memory text, it also says that, um, that we are to be stewards of something. What are we to be stewards of? The mysteries of God. So there we go, back to if we're going to be stewards of God, then we need to, do we need to understand what those mysteries are in order to be stewards of the mysteries? Yes. So what are the mysteries of God that we are to be stewards of? That is character. The truth about his character. How he operates his government. How he operates his government. For another question. Um, why are these mysteries? They're so different. Are they mysteries because God wants them to be mysterious? They're different than the condition of our natural heart. Okay, she says they're different than the condition of our natural heart, meaning our fallen mindset doesn't, doesn't automatically process and comprehend spiritual things or spiritually discern and so forth. Is it possible there's an enemy that works to obstruct these things? And is it possible that, as you say, our current minds don't work in those lines to, to naturally comprehend? I think those things are true. According to the SDE Bible Commentary, it says, uh, Mysterion, which is translated mystery, 
refers to something that God wills to make known. Not to hide. He wants to reveal it to those who are willing to receive the revelation rather than uh, something that he desires to keep secret. Throughout Paul's writing, the word carries the meaning of something which, though incapable of being fully understood by unassisted human reason, has now been made known by divine revelation. In Revelation, it, re- it has reference to the symbol that requires interpretation, a symbol that requires interpretation for understanding. Paul regarded it as his mission to make known the mystery which was kept secret from the beginning of the world. God's eternal purpose to redeem man in Christ has now been declared in Christianity. Thus, Paul describes the whole Christian revelation as a mystery. He applies the term to the incarnation of Christ, to the union of Christ, to his church as typified by marriage, to the transformation of saints at the second coming, to the opposition of Antichrist, and especially to the admission of the Gentiles to the kingdom of Christ. So when you hear the mystery of God, is the first thing that enters your mind, these are the things God wants to reveal. No, no. That's what I want you to think for now. Mystery of God, that's the thing God wants to reveal, to make known, not to keep mysterious. See, in human uh, religious sects, mysteries are things that we keep. We have a little secret. We have, you know, certain, certain uh, uh, societies get together and we have our different stand. And, and only those who, who take the oath are allowed to know the secrets. That's not how God works. Revelation says in Revelation 10, 7, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So first question, as we start to understand this, what happens when the seventh angel does actually sound his trumpet? So when the seventh angel is about, so something's going to happen right before. So we need to know what actually happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. We can get that in Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So what do you think that means is happening at, at the seventh trumpet? That's the second coming of Christ. So the previous verse, in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. We'll be talking about a period of time when? Right before Christ comes. So what then is this mystery of God that will be accomplished before he comes? The very first verse in Revelation, because Revelation we all look at as a very mysterious thing, and it has things we don't understand in it, but the very first sentence of the very first verse says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book wasn't really meant to... um, Confuse us. It was meant to reveal. So what is the mystery of God that is to be revealed right before the seventh trumpet? Not not revealed. To be accomplished. Accomplished right before the seventh trumpet. How about this one? Colossians one twenty seven. See if you think this fits. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you think that's the mystery? That is to be accomplished right before the second coming of Christ. Transformation of heart. Does God want a people prepared who will be able to see him face to face? Because it says in another place in Scripture, we will be like him. 
So that's what the mystery before the angel is, is there will be a group of people who fully reflect Christ's character dwelling in them, and they're sealed in the knowledge of the truth about God. Yes, and so the scripture in Revelation describes that these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That survival drive, self-protector, replaced with the law of love written on the heart and mind, the character of Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. There's a real internal change in this people. This is a mystery. How does it happen? But it's God's plan. Can this happen? Can we experience the restoration of Christ's likeness if we hold to views about God that make him beastly? No. I don't think we can. By beholding, we become changed. The law of worship, we actually become like the God we worship. And so we can't really come back and experience this mystery if we don't come back to the truth. You know the truth, and the truth ultimately about God. Sunday's lesson, it's about faithfulness. Maybe you've heard Semper Fi. Yes. Which is short for Semper Fidelis, which is the Latin means always faithful, and is the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps. Always faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? To be loyal. And the lesson says being faithful means staying true to what we know is right, especially in the heat of spiritual battles. Spiritual battles, what are those then? Second paragraph. Spiritual conflicts between right and wrong, good and evil, will surely come. They are part of the fight of faith. The decision that marks stewards in every situation is the choice to be faithful. If you love wealth, be sure to remain faithful to God and what he says about dangers of loving money. If you crave fame, remain faithful to what the word of God says about humility. If you struggle with lustful thoughts, remain faithful to the promise of holiness. If you want power, remain faithful to what God says about being a servant of all. The choice to be faithful or unfaithful often is made in a split second, even if the consequences can be eternal. Being faithful to what one knows is true and choosing that regardless of pressure Yes, but it begs the question, how do you know what's true? Can someone be faithful to something they believe is true, but what they believe is true isn't true? Yes. Jesus said in Matthew 7, and 23, many will come to me in the day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we drew out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name. I will, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Does this sound like the people who were called evildoers here had rejected the idea of God, rejected believing in God? We don't believe in God. Had they decided to become agnostics? Were they faithful to Christ? Did they think they were faithful? Interesting. So the question really is twofold. Are we faithful? Do we make choices? To do that which we currently believe is right and stick with the right? And do we have a solid basis for determining what is actually right? It's a twofold, really, understanding, isn't it? Do we continually to seek to grow in our knowledge? To say, hey, no matter what I think is right today, I'm a finite being. I need to be open to grow and transform and have new perspectives and change as new light comes into my mind. Well, how do you know right and wrong? This is back to the seven levels of moral decision-making. If a person has the assumption that God's law is imposed, 
and that God dictates that we obey, then if that's their level of understanding, they read Genesis through that filter and they see that after the fall, God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That This is God's new standard that God has just prescribed and determined the new way things should be and that women must subordinate themselves to men. And thus, when we set up church structure, women are not to have leadership roles and are not to be ordained because God has prescribed it this way. I've read it. My Bible says it. Who am I to question it? The mature, however, who understand design law, realize that God was not dictating a new design. There was nothing wrong with his original design. His original design was perfect. But he was describing and denouncing to them what would now occur since they decided to replace the perfect law of love as the prime motive of their being with the law of selfishness, survival of the fittest, with the prime law of their being. And when you replace that, then what happens naturally? The strong dominate the weak, and the weak seek protection from the strong. Thus, men are going to dominate women, and women are going to seek to be protected by men. And historically that happens and has happened. And sadly, today, many men continue in their own insecurity to promote the dominance of women. So let's examine faithful stewardship through the seven levels. And you tell me, which is the truly faithful steward? Reward and punishment. This steward obeys to avoid being punished and to get rewards from his master. Level two, marketplace exchange. He obeys because of the agreed compensation he's going to get from the master. Level three, social conformity. He obeys to be recognized as the best steward by his peers. Level four, law and order. He obeys so he won't be criminally prosecuted. Level five, he obeys because he loves his master. Level six, he obeys because he loves his master and also understands the laws upon which reality work. Level seven, he obeys because he loves his master and understands the laws upon which life works, but he also understands what the master's trying to accomplish and intelligently participates with him. Which is truly the best steward. So let's apply this to some different scenarios and see how this works. You get a message, you, you're the steward, and you get a message purported to come from God telling you that you need to go kill this other human being. What do you do? It's moral decision-making time, right or wrong. Level one, reward or punishment. If you're operating at level one, God told me to kill some other human being. If I don't, I'll get punished. It's right, I'll go kill him. You see many people in history operating at this level. Level two, marketplace exchange. You kill the other person to avoid losing your benefits package. Level three, social conformity. If your culture accepts that God in certain situations would have someone killed, then you go ahead and kill the person. Level four, law and order. You would cite the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, and you would claim the message is false, not from God, and you would reject it and no longer trust the source of information. Some of you are comfortable with that one. Level five, love for others. You would seek a way to avoid killing the other person while still being loyal to God, and you would argue and, rem- and, and have a long conversation with God, would likely decide that because God is love, God wouldn't kill, so you would reject the message and not listen anymore. 
principle-based living, you understand that killing violates God's design unless you would reject the message and not kill. Level seven, understanding friend of God, you know God personally. You understand and, and know his voice. You understand God is love and that this is out of harmony with his designs, but you also understand that God is the one asking you and there must be some purpose beyond your understanding. Your heart resists the instructions. You argue with God, but in the end, you take your son Isaac to the mount and sacri- to sacrifice him as God requested. You were relieved in the end to discover that God actually never intended for you to kill your son. He had another purpose, which was to help you overcome your own self-dependence and trust him. Oh, you don't like that one, do you? <laughs> I like that one the best. <laughs> Other examples I'll leave you to do like this on your own. David and the showbread. Walk through the seven levels. The story of the old and the young prophet in First Kings 13. Go through the seven levels and see what's going on there. Bottom green section asks us to read Revelation 2.10, which says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. What does it mean? to be faithful to the point of death. Were those who drank the Kool-Aid in Jonestown faithful to the point of death? Did anyone see the ABC documentary recently on Waco, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Anyone see it? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's quite well done, the documentary. Were those who burned to death in Waco faithful unto death? Yes, they actually show interviews that the FBI did. They had uh, actual interviews while during the standoff, 51-day standoff. They interviewed most of the adults in there through a video and recorded the interviews. And every one of them freely chose to be there. And they were convinced they were being loyal to God. Were they faithful? What about those who flew planes into the trade towers in September 11? Were they faithful to the God they worshipped until death? So all these people who were faithful to death can claim the revelation promise that they will get the crown of life. You're comfortable with that? Not comfortable with that. If you examine the theology of David Koresh, the major points of functional theology, it's almost exactly the theology of Isis. God is supreme and all-powerful. We must resist evil. Jesus instructed his disciples to carry swords, so it's proper for our followers of Christ to carry weapons. Jesus will come back and destroy his enemies and punish sin. When people resist the will of God, we must take up arms and fight back. God will use his power to punish his enemies. This is basically the same theology taught by all those who hold penal substitution theology. You pin them down, They all teach, in the end, justice requires God, uses power to punish the wicked. These people who follow this view, they were, when you, when you listen to the FBI agents who were, who had opportunity, not only to talk to David Koresh, but they talked to many of the people who died in Waco. And they reasoned with them. They talked about fulfilling God's purpose by coming out and witnessing. They talked about their children, and the love for their children. 
And, and the FBI agents were struck by it didn't matter. No amount of evidence or truth or logic or reason had any impact on them. None. Monday's lesson. At the top it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What does this text teach us about the supreme importance of loyalty to God? Do you think all those people I just talked about thought they were being loyal or disloyal? And, 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 and this is the point I'm getting at. At its root, you can have this faithfulness. You can have this loyalty unto death. But if you don't actually know God, you're not on his side. And so the ultimate truth, we live in the world, we wage wars, we don't wage wars, the world does. Our weapons of divine power demolish arguments and pretension that sets us up against the knowledge of God. Life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. This is the critical thing. How can you actually get unwavering loyalty? Well, this is uh, from some material out of the God Shaped Heart book, but I talk in there about the use of power. Paul uses the term that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Use of power. There are different types of power. I'm going to run through the different types of power real quick and see, and, and you're, I want you to think specifically, if I use that power to recruit adherence followers to my cause, how loyal, what, what's the level of loyalty I can expect? First type of power is might and strength. Coercive power. The power of coercion, threats and intimidation. Might. Can you get loyalty? by threatening to punish those who don't stay loyal. This was how the Nazis did it. This was how Saddam Hussein did it. His regime, regime, they rooted out, they constantly spying on their people, anybody who had any disruptive thoughts, and you see other governments say, they executed, killed, got rid of. Stay loyal or else. Can you get absolute, unshakable, unbreakable loyalty with this type of power? No, you can't. What will break? What will break coercive power? A bigger threat. A bigger threat, number one. Perhaps an inducement that is so valuable to you that you value so much more than your life that you could be bought off. Believing a lie. Genuine love for some other person. And hope of freedom. You're being coerced, and there's the hope of freedom. You see, so you see through history, every time these coercive measures are used, eventually the more pressure that's brought within the, the populace, if, no, if not from an external source, there's always a, a rising up of rebellion with the hope of freedom to throw it off. You can't get actual loyalty by threatening to punish the people who are disloyal. How about inducing power? That was coercive power. Inducing power. The power of bribes, payoffs, promotions, advancements, praise, adoration. Does this type of power result in absolute, unshakable loyalty? What can break this type of power? A serious threat? A better payoff? A lie? 
genuine love for someone else. Deceiving power. Next power, deceiving power. The power of lies, deceit and deception. Now, this power is actually stronger than either coercive power or inducing power. Those who are followers based on a lie, like we would look at the people at Waco, no amount of threat from the government could break them away from their loyalty. No amount of bribe. You couldn't offer them a million dollars, 10 million, a billion. They wouldn't be bought. So when they really sink into the lie and they believe the lie, coercion and and, uh, inducements don't work. This is various terrorist organizations and various cults. But what will break the power of a lie? Another lie that they believe. Okay, a bigger lie. That could work. But ultimately, the truth for those who are willing to acknowledge and accept the truth. Some will not. The truth has no power. They won't see it. They won't hear it. They won't listen to it. It won't get in. But if it gets in, the truth will break a lie. And love for someone other than self. And, and that was demonstrated also at the Waco. Some of those women who were absolutely committed to David Korash and would not leave one of their children out. Their love for their children caused them to work to get the kids out, even though Koresh didn't necessarily want the kids out. Power of love. Does this power result in absolutely uncompromising and trustworthy loyalty if you genuinely love in a pure and other-centered way? No, there's a power that broke historically the power of love, and that's the power of lies. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. That's what happened in Eden. They believed lies about God and their love and trust in God were broken. So love alone is not secure. But there's one power that when experienced is unbreakable. That power is the power of truth and love combined. When truth and love combined are experienced, then Lies have no power because you recognize them for what they are. Coercion has no power. Threats have no power. None of them have any power over you anymore. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And that's why at Pentecost they saw two streams of fire, the fires of truth and love. And that's why it says in Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, says the Lord. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the use of an the use of power that love will use called restraining power and restraining power is the power that love will do to protect those who are in a position they're not able to protect themselves from themselves often from an injury and so forth and so on examples of restraining power a child running to the street and the parent grabs them and holds them back, centers for disease control, implementing quarantine, mental health professionals forcibly hospitalizing and medicating patients who are psychotic, benevolent societies incarcerating those bent on hurting other members of society. Love will do all those things. But notice how restraining power is used. The goal of restraining power, its ultimate goal, is to remove the restraint. The parent doesn't want to put the child on the leash forever. The parent wants to only restrain the child so the child can grow up and be self-governed. 
The psychiatrist doesn't want to put a person in restraints and keep them in a hospital forever. The psychiatrist wants to return them to sanity and set them free. Even when we incarcerate people who are criminals, the goal is to rehabilitate so they can reenter society and not be a danger to society or themselves. But restraining power does not change hearts. It just restrains the damage that would otherwise occur while other forces come to bear to hopefully help the person grow up and, and mature. So our loyalty to God must be based on truth and love. And this is the same thing as be, saying, being so settled into the truth, both intellectually, that's truth, and spiritually, that's character, that's love, that you can't be moved. And so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, is the same as saying, being sealed. It's the seal of God. And so when it looks in Revelation and says these are the seal of God or hold, hold, hold until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead, it's talking about a group of people. The mystery of God is to be accomplished right before the seventh angel sounds. It is the group of people right before the seventh angel who are so settled into the truth, both in their comprehension and understanding of reality, intellectually, and in their character and the principles of love that they practice, that nothing can shake them out of it. They're sealed. First paragraph states, knowing that God's name means jealous should give us a clarion call for loyalty. Loyalty to a jealous God is loyalty in love. In the fight of faith, loyalty helps define who we are and encourage us, encourages us to stay in the battle. So they reference Exodus 34.14, and Exodus 34.14 states, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What do you think about when you think about jealousy? What comes to mind when you hear the word jealous? Negative. A negative to me. A negative. Fear. Fear. Insecurity. Insecurity. So I looked in the dictionary the definitions of jealous, and there's six definitions that this word can mean. Six different things it can mean. This is part of the problem with language. Mm-hmm. Part of the problems with translations. Because when you translate, they, trans- they have to six different possible interpretations of this. You, I'm going to read each one, and you tell me, is this apply to God, yes or no? Fe- first definition. Feeling resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantages. He was jealous of his rich brother. Apply to God or not? No. 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 Definition is two. Feeling resentment because of another's success advantages. He was jealous of his brother's wealth. No, it's very similar to the first one. Does not apply to God. Three, characterized by or proceeding from suspicious fears or envious resentment. Jealous rage, jealous intrigue. No. No, does not apply to God. Four, inclined to or troubled by suspicions or fears of rivalry, unfaithfulness, as in love or aims. A jealous husband. Does this apply to God? No, it does not. And the reason it doesn't, some say, yeah, but what, you, some might argue it does. Because we're to be faithful to him like a, a bride and groom and so forth and so on. No, because this is all about what the husband is to receive from the wife. And he's not receiving his just dues in the marriage. And she's giving her affection to someone else. That's not fair. And he's jealous over that. that that's not God. Number five, intolerant of unfaithfulness or rivalry. The Lord is a jealous God. This is how the dictionary actually states it. The Lord is a jealous God. 
Does this apply to God? No, this is a false definition the dictionary has. They do not understand. God gives us genuine freedom. The entire conflict between good and evil is evidence that God uh, does not use his power to stop people from going after other gods. He doesn't. There's definition six. Solicitous or vigilant in maintaining or guarding something. The American people are jealous of their freedom. Nah, finally, finally. (laughs) Notice five out of six definitions. And this absolutely applies for God. He's jealous for his creation, for his children, for their health, for their welfare, for their good. And all of this means he's jealous for them to worship him because he is the source of all this good and his design laws are the laws upon which life is built. And anytime we leave those designs, we injure ourselves, we damage ourselves, we take ourselves out of harmony, we worship another God, we corrode our own faculties. He's jealous for our good. Amen. So when you hear in the Bible, jealous, our God is a jealous God, do you hear his, he's vi- vigorous to protect our best interest? Is that what you typically hear? Or do you hear he's angry if we don't think about him on Sabbath? If we go swimming on Sabbath, then we're breaking his law and he's jealous to protect his Sabbath and we've broken it, so he's mad at us now. Which way do we hear it? used to hear it that way. So one way to protect yourself in the future from drawing the wrong conclusion from the texts that talk about God being a jealous God is to replace the J with a Z. Our God is a zealous God. Our God is a zealous God. And I put in here from the lexicon, the Hebrew lexicon, the actual Hebrew word translated jealous is also translated zealous. Same word. So it's a legitimate substitution. And I think if we would read that instead, that his name is zealous. That that, that changes my whole understanding. He's passionate. He's on fire for good. He's out for my best interest. Wow, I have a zealous God who's who's after after my salvation. Changes everything. Isn't Satan the one that's jealous? Ah, so all those other definitions, she says, isn't Satan the one that's jealous? Under all the other definitions, yes. All the others apply to Satan. That one only applies to God. That's right. Second paragraph. Our loyalty is important to God. It is not a contract that tries to foresee every contingency, nor is it just a list of rules. It is rather a visible expression of our personal beliefs, faith, and commitment. I think this is pretty reasonably well said. It is not just a list of rules. You can't have faithfulness by checklists. And then the third paragraph, where there is loyalty, however, there is the possibility of betrayal. Loyalty like love must be offered freely or it's not true loyalty. Sometimes in war, frontline troops are forced to stay and fight. Otherwise, their officers would have them shot. These men might do their duty, but it isn't out of loyalty. That's not the kind of loyalty God asks for. Oh, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. And if you took that idea and went back in the last two years of quarterlies, you'd probably have to eliminate about two-thirds of what's there. Because they repeatedly teach from the imposed law construct that justice requires that God actually punishes the disobedient. 
But you can't get loyalty by threatening to punish those who are disloyal. You can get obedience behaviorally. But loyalty is more than behavioral performance. Loyalty, exactly as they say, is just for the heart. And you can't get trust, love, and loyalty by threatening people. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph. There are many precious things that we can possess. Health, love, friends, a great family. These are all blessings. But perhaps one of the most important of all is a clear conscience. This is absolutely true. When the conscience is not clear, the conscience will activate your stress circuits. You'll feel uneasy. You'll feel restless. You'll feel, you will feel fear. You will feel doubt. You will begin to worry. You'll begin hyper um, scanning your environment, looking for potential threats. You'll seek peace. But... If you don't seek peace through setting it right, repentance, restoration, whatever wrong you've done, instead you seek to avoid the the, the pains of conscience from denial. It wasn't me, Lord, it was the woman. Distortion, projection, externalization, blaming. Then we begin to form lies in our mind. We're no longer being truthful, which only causes us to be more fearful that something's going to expose the lie. Which we become more vigilant to keep track of all the lies we're telling unless we contradict ourselves and we expose our lie. Which continually activates the brain's stress circuits, which activates inflammatory cascades, which undermines our physical health. We actually sear our consciences over time. We warp our reasoning abilities. We lose the ability to discern right from wrong. We ruin our health, destroy our relationships, In the end, we die alone. Do you think I've overstated it? What I just described, guys, is that an infliction by a judicial magistrate? This is design law. You can't find health out of harmony with God and his design. It's always destructive. Second paragraph, our consciences function as internal monitors of our outward lives. A conscience needs to attach itself to a high and perfect standard, God's law. God wrote his law on the heart of Adam, but sin almost obliterated it, not just in him, but in his descendants. Only fragments of the law remain. Now, there's, quote, a portion of Romans here. Gentiles show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. I'm going to read a fuller portion of that Romans text. It's Romans 2. I'm going to read 13 through 15. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on the heart, their conscience also bearing witness, Question for you. Do you notice that these Gentiles are doing by nature what the law requires? Do we believe this to be true? According to scripture. Then what does it mean? There's there's an implication here. Think it through. What does it mean? Okay, let me put it this way. What kind of law can people do by nature? 
What kind of law can people obey by nature? Let me put it this way. What kind of law can people keep without actually being informed there's a law? Thank you. This is prima facie evidence that God's law is design law. Do people naturally, let's give you some examples. Do people by nature circumcise their kids? No. No. They do not. That is not designed. That's imposed rule. That's why circumcision was not required for Gentiles and for converts to Christianity. Circumcision was not part of God's design law. It was something added later for a specific reason and purpose. Do people naturally, by design law nature, pay taxes? No. no. <laughs> Including the temple tax. The temple tax that people had to pay? Was that something they didn't have, Or did they have to be informed of that? Do people naturally pay tithe? No. Tithe is an imposed system. Now, people may naturally give offerings out of a thankful heart. But tithe is prescribed at 10%. It's restricted even. Have you ever heard people say, well, I pay a double tithe? No, you don't. You pay 10% and give another 10% offering. Only 10% is tithe. It's restricted. Have you ever thought why? I had this thought this morning. It's speculation now. You can disagree with me, but here's my speculation working. Thought why? Why 10%? Do you think God prescribed the 10% tithe to protect people from religious abuse? In other words, religious leaders couldn't change the tithe. See, offerings are always free will. Tithe is a requirement. If you're really going to be faithful, it's, it's not yours. It's the Lord's money. You have to give 10% back. If it wasn't restricted, look at the history of religions. Look at the indulgences. Look at what religious leaders can come along. Uh, tithe now is 20%. Tithe is now 40%. You've got to pay a 40% tithe. You don't think that would have happened? It does with our government. <laughs> There's many puns I could have thrown out then. I restrained myself. <laughs> Self-restraint right there. Do you remember how God gave the instructions for animal sacrifice? Do you remember how religious leaders thought, well, if one's good, a thousand will be better. And they started sacrificing thousands. Do you think people might have gone, you know what? If 10% tithe is good, maybe 20% is better. And they give out of a sense of obligation. What happens when you give out of a sense of obligation? If you're not sure what I'm saying here, what happens when you have to pay your taxes every year? If you bought a new car and had to go register and they told you you've got $2,700 in taxes to pay as you register your car, do you go, I love my state so much more? Does it build love when you're ob obliged to pay? No. It does not. So imposed laws are not kept by nature. And the fact that they could keep these laws without being informed of them tells you what kinds of laws they really are. It should, this type, when you come to, and, and make a database in your mind of all the evidences. This is just another little piece of evidence because there are people who live so under the imperial system 
And you bring them texts like this. This is called cognitive dissonance. They can't really answer how come this is true. They, you know, under the imposed law system, it's not that you have the law of love written on your heart. You have to also be baptized by immersion in the right name. You have to partake of the right rituals. You have to do, this was the argument in the New Testament. They had to be circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, you can't be saved. You have to do all this other stuff. I love this quotation of Desire of Ages, page 638. Those who Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. That's design stuff. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they had befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathens are those who worship God ignorantly. Those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. Notice, they have done the things the law required. Pause. And these people claim the blood of Jesus as their legal payment in the courts of heaven. But I thought the law requires that we must accept the blood payment. And if we don't accept the blood payment, how can we be, how can we have our legal debt canceled? Realizing you're not the law of God's written on the heart. That's right. But the point is that system's false. It's a false system. There is no legal application of blood. Blood is metaphor. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus said, you have no part with me. Not cannibalism. Jesus doesn't apply the blood to books in heaven. Jesus applies the blood to the internal, internal being. And the blood then and meat are metaphorical. Jesus is the word made flesh. So when we eat the flesh, we're eating the word. The word is the source of truth. So we're partaking truth. The truth of God, who he is, his methods, his principles. As we partake of those truths, it brings us to trust. Wow, you aren't the God who's against me. You aren't the imperial dictator. You're a loving God who who loves me so much you gave yourself for me. Wow, I trust you because I partake in the word, eat my flesh. And now I open the heart. Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. Well, the life is in the blood. The life principles are the principles of love. He pours his character, his other-centered principles into us that we get new hearts and right spirits. This is partaking. And the flesh and blood became new symbols. Bread and wine. But he's the bread of heaven who's come down. And we have the same symbol. But so many people get stuck on the symbols. And now they think there's something magical when you take the bread. There's a billion people in the world who think when you swallow the bread, it magically transforms into human tissue, the body of Jesus. Something magical happens. No, it's just a symbol. And these people we just read about here, I'm going to suggest have never partaken in a communion ceremony. They've never been baptized in any form, sprinkle or immersion. They've never claimed the legal payment. 
yet they have done by nature the things the law requires. Many Christians can't grasp this. I've, I've had this discussion out of Romans chapter 2 with Christians of various denominations, and they really get distraught. Because you, there's no other name under heaven whereby men are saved. And are you saying they can be saved without claiming the name of Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They haven't accepted Jesus. What are you saying? Are you saying that all paths get to heaven? What do you say to that? How do you answer those those objections? No, but I'm knowing people have lived good lives and live good lives today, not necessarily representing God in their mind, but by their actions. But they haven't accepted Jesus. The Bible says only through Jesus. He's the only name whereby men are saved, and only through him can you come to the Father. So good life doesn't get you there. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but that's not what it means. So what do you say to these people? So what you've just come is you come to an impasse. You don't have an answer to those. So so, so you're right in your understanding, but how do you answer those texts? Do you have an answer for those texts that harmonizes these two? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. So these people in Romans 2, because it's all one document just flowing, are responding, and just like the text we read here in Desire of Ages, are responding to what they've seen in nature. Okay, who's the creator of nature in this planet? Which member of the Godhead? All things were made by him and for him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was the member of the Godhead who made this planet. So if somebody discovers God through nature, they're discovering it through the work of Jesus Christ, thus they're still coming through Jesus. That's right. Number one. Number two, when they trust God and they open the holy heart to the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit reproduce in them? The character of Jesus. Ah, where did that perfect character come from? That human character that was perfected. It came from Jesus. Whether they know his name or not, the Holy Spirit is still reproducing Christ within. So it's still Christ that lives within them, even though they haven't heard his name yet. If you want to look at it this way, if you want to look at it very medicinally, it's like they have an infection and they're given penicillin, but they don't know that it's called penicillin and nobody's told them it's, but it does its work in them because they trust the doctor and and allow, allow them to be treated. Okay, treat me. Jesus, so they do, my point is they do come through Christ and there is no other solution. Christ is the means whereby the Holy Spirit heals the hearts and restores us to unity with God. Doesn't this come back to the idea of privilege that so many people have that they want in life that somehow they receive knowledge that that makes them privileged above other people? I think that's a temptation we all struggle with, isn't it? From the, from the carnal side of it. Yeah, we want to be special. And this is what happened with the Jews. They became very elitist and special, and they walked higher than others. And this is, in, in various organizations, you can see there's, there are people sometimes, well, we are the remnant. We have this blessing or we have that blessing, so we're better than those who don't have the blessing. You can see that uh, in various organizations, and it's a temptation I think we have to resist. You know, but for the grace of God. There go I. I am so thankful that I was raised in a in a society that taught me to brush my teeth. There are people in the world and society still that don't. Now, when I see them toothless, I don't. I'm so much better than you. I'm so much. I'm so thankful that I was privileged 
to be raised with better opportunities and knowledge and truths that I could assimilate. Even though I was raised to brush my teeth, I was still free not to, and some people in America don't. Same principle. So we, are priv- we have privileges. And, and my understanding of how the God's kingdom works, the more of those privileges we experience, we have a responsibility to share back. We don't get the privileges just for our own enjoyment. We're privileged and blessed to be enabled and equipped to do work for the kingdom, to be stewards. We're talking about stewards. And so all the talents we're given, all the wisdom we're given, all the health we're given is in some way to be put for use in the landscape of the great field of humanity. Yeah? Wednesday's lesson, third paragraph says, obedience starts in the mind. It involves the delicate process of mentally accepting the, the responsibility of carrying out commands from a higher authority. Obedience stems from a relationship with an authority figure and the willingness to obey the figure. Is that the kind of obedience God wants? This is absolutely incorrect. This is contrary to Jesus in John 15, 15. Now, let's, 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 let's parse this. It is true, God is the ultimate authority. That's a fact. But God doesn't want, does God want us to obey him because he is an authority figure? And who are we to question? No. Two people in the Old Testament were called friends of God. Abraham and Moses. And what did both of those do when God came and said he was going to wipe some people out? What did both of them do? Well, you're the authority. I'm just the humble servant. I obey what the master says. Or did they both argue? They argued with the authority. I can tell you I've heard many preachers that would say that's anathema, that you are not to argue with God. If God says do it, you, have, you do not question. You simply obey. That's level one thinking. That's the thinking of a slave. But God calls us into friendship, level seven thinking. He wants us to understand him and what he's trying to accomplish. So where does genuine authority, from where does genuine authority arise? Might and power. The most powerful is the most authoritative. Position. It arises from the position one holds. So pastor, this was an argument that was put to me too when I questioned certain things. A few years back, I was told by a particular person, He's the Lord's anointed. He's the pastor. He's the Lord anointed. And therefore, you have no right to question him. And I said, wow, how'd that work for Martin Luther? Would you told Martin Luther that? Would you told Jesus that when he was talking to Caiaphas and Annas? They didn't like my answers. Pastor, priest, pope, president, God. He, he has authority because of his position. How about degree or education? He's a physician, he's a theologian, he's got a doctoral degree. Does does authority come from from education? How about title? He's the king, she's the queen, she or he is a prophet. And therefore, if you've got the prophetic gift, then their writings are authoritative and we quote those writings and we don't question them. That never happens, you've never seen that, have you? How about species? Authority comes from species, humans or angels or a deity. If you're a member of the deity, you have authority. If you're an, if you're an angel, you have authority. How about from the truth itself? What's authoritative is reality and truth. And because all truth originates with, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All truth originates 
when you follow truth, always takes you back to God. Truth is authoritative, and God is the source of all truth. And that's the authority. I read this in Desire of Ages. We'll close on this quote about Jesus' birth. Page 43. The king of glory stooped to t- low to take humanity. Rude and forbidding were his earthly surroundings. His glory was veiled that the majesty of his outward form might not become an object of attraction. He shunned all outward display. Riches, worldly honor, and human greatness can never save a soul from death. Jesus purposed that no attraction of an earthly nature should call men to his side. Only the beauty of heavenly truth must draw those who would follow him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of truth, love, and freedom, and that you want our genuine love and trust, and that you have operated in the methods you have to reveal truth to us at such cost to yourself. We ask that the spirit of truth will come and enlighten our minds and win us over completely, and then fill our hearts with your presence and Write your law of love in our hearts and minds. May we be so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that nothing can move us. And we can be enabled to be bright lights in this dark world. That the mystery of God might be complete. And the seventh angel may sound. In your holy name, amen.